Okay, well, welcome to 2023, comrades. Um, I think it's going to be, um, as the Chinese peasants used to say, as a curse, an interesting year as far as uh, our government is uh, concerned. Um, but what I want to do to begin with, in part, I suppose, because uh, we advertised uh, in the um, paper uh, the first uh, online communist forum of the year using a, uh, I think, it's stark, horrible uh, image from uh, Ukraine. I'll start um, with that um, ongoing war. A um, couple of things really to start with. First of all, just to say, as we expected, the last article I wrote on the Ukraine war in the paper, uh, notes on the war, was talking about winter. And uh, my prediction for what it was worth is there wasn't going to be a cessation in fighting uh, in spite of the freezing cold weather, uh, in spite of the mud um, that also uh, occurs at this time of year. Uh, no, quite the contrary. We've uh, seen um, an ongoing um, bombardment by Russia using pretty crude uh, Iranian drones, but uh, I don't know what the percentage, but some of them inevitably uh, get through. Apparently, um, something like a third of the components of these Iranian drones are US. So it's, that's caused something of a stir. Uh, in the United States, given that Iran is, you know, sanctioned and has been sanctioned uh, for years. So that's quite uh, remarkable. Um, but also, of course, on the Eastern Front, we've seen continued fierce fighting. Um, just a couple of points, I suppose. I'm not going to review the whole Ukraine war. Maybe we could do that, um, you know, on the anniversary uh, of the invasion, I'll call it. Uh, an invasion, February the 2024th. Just a couple of points. I mean, my own assessment at the time was I, I didn't really see the Russian army having too, too many problems reaching and surrounding Kiev. I, I just thought that was easily within their capability. I thought it was a lot more problematic to take Kiev because that would involve, I thought, you know, street fighting, block by block, you know, yard by yard, hugely costly. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I never thought uh, that Russia could win. Um, that was really my assessment. Um, and I'm looking at the, the battle now, and, you know, I have to conclude uh, that basically I'm right. But what I didn't expect, for example, was the whole thing to descend into an almost World War I uh, style war, a war of yards, a, a, a war of uh, almost inches, uh, and a war of infantry, of uh, trenches, and of artillery. Um, instead, I was very much expecting uh, Russia to totally dominate the skies uh, and to rain down uh, death and destruction uh, at their will. There was clearly uh, no possibility of the Ukrainian Air Force uh, standing up to the Russian Air Force. Instead of that, what modern technology has done is basically not rendered air warfare irrelevant, but almost rendered uh, fixed wing aircraft and helicopters 
uh, irrelevant. And what we have instead is uh, cheap, disposable, you know, kamikaze drones. I think there are 20,000 uh, that have been uh, imported from Iran and rockets. Um, that, that seems to be the, the nature of the warfare. And another thing I just point out, uh, which sort of comes as a surprise to me, at least. I'm not saying um, you lot, uh, but remember the much vaunted uh, cyber warfare uh, that, you know, we're now in the... I can remember reading Paul Mason when he was sort of um, hoisting himself around as being the potential defence minister in the Keir Starmer uh, government, you know, showing off his military expertise, talking about cyber warfare. And the first thing that the Russians do is launch their, um, you know, clever guys in Moscow or Leningrad and take, take, uh, um, I don't know, the electricity supply, for example, uh, of Kiev down. Well, they, they've, they've not done that. And uh, I've just been reading that one of the reasons that they haven't been successful in doing that is that um, Ukraine was equipped uh, with uh, Microsoft uh, and other um, Western technicians. Now, I don't know whether they're based in Ukraine. There's no reason for them to be based in Ukraine, but this hasn't turned into a cyber warfare. Cyber warfare has gone on, uh, but it's been unsuccessful. And instead of cyber warfare taking out the electricity supply uh, in Kiev, it's been drone and rocket uh, warfare uh, that have been doing that. Now, will uh, the Ukrainian population surrender? Will they become so demoralized that they're clam they clamor for peace? That was the old theory uh, that if you read uh, textbooks, you know, um, Air Force textbooks going back to just after uh, World War One, that was the prediction. That's what uh, uh, the Americans thought. That's what the Germans thought, we, we, you know, with their um, bombing of London. Uh, that's what Bomber Harris uh, thought when he took out Dresden and killed, you know, thousands and thousands in a firestorm. No civilians don't do that. And we shouldn't expect uh, Ukrainian civ uh, civilians to do that. Quite the opposite. Uh, they don't turn uh, on their own government. They turn on the people that are delivering hell uh, from the skies. That, that's been uh, the record. And if that's true in World War uh, two, it was certainly true uh, in what I'll call the Vietnam uh, War. Um, Vietnam was bombed and bombed and bombed by American B-52s. Laos, uh, I think, was even more heavily bombed. Um, no, it didn't lead to um, people surrendering. Um, led to quite the opposite. Anyway, uh, what else do we have in terms of the news in, in, in uh, relationship to Ukraine? We've got the death of who knows how many uh, soldiers. Um, officially, it's now 89. This is um, in Luhansk. Um, Ukraine talks about three to 400. We don't know what the actual truth is, apart from the fact that we do think that this was um, a strike by these American himvars, if I'm pronouncing it right, if there's such a thing as a correct pronunciation of a himvar, a multiple uh, rocket uh, launcher, but with accuracy. So it's not like the old Stalin organs in um, World War II, you know, rockets, 
these are missiles and they land on the they should land on the intended target. Now, the Russian high command seems to be blaming uh, Russian rank and file soldiers for using mobile phones. I don't know whether that's true or not, whether that actually that you need uh, to lock into such signals in order to land your missiles. I can't see why. Uh, I think you could uh, locate the target you know, using satellite uh, intelligence that the Americans no doubt uh, supply. Uh, and of course, what is uh, um, a factor here is that these guys seem to have been housed uh, next to an ammunition dump. And that's the cause of so many casualties. It's not the missiles what done it, it's the missiles hitting uh, the ammunition dump, which then goes off, which uh, produces such uh, uh, massive, relatively speaking, massive uh, uh, deaths. Okay. We also have, again, on uh, the Ukraine uh, question, uh, the rumor, this is from Ukraine, so take it with, uh, how should I put it, uh, the first casualty of war is truth, so who knows the truth of it, but the story that uh, Putin is going to go ahead and uh, mobilize 500,000 more uh, Russian men uh, for the Ukraine war, quite possible, um, you know, that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, what we also know is that the West, uh, crucially America, is going to continue to pump arms in on a big scale. And the arms are getting more sophisticated uh, and more deadly uh, with each, each week. So as, as we predicted, <laughs> no great foresight, you know, that uh, Ukraine in, in, in terms of uh, missile warfare, not so much drone warfare, uh, would request and almost certainly be uh, given uh, Patriot uh, missiles. This is, these are the sort of missiles that uh, Israel has. Uh, I don't know what their percentage of hits are, but these are sophisticated uh, surface to air missiles and they can hit an incoming missile, which will be going, I don't know, twice, three times the speed of sound, something along uh, those lines, and we'll be able to blast it uh, in, in the sky. Um, so they will be supplied. But again, uh, you need to train people up. They're not just, um, you know, pointed up in the sky and they find it. These are very sophisticated uh, pieces of kit. They involve radar um, and a lot of training. So again, uh, that will take time. But we also know uh, that the Americans and uh, NATO are moving towards the direction of tanks. Now, I've commented previously on tank warfare, uh, which we've seen very little use of effectively in the Ukraine war. I mean, we've all seen the pictures of uh, Russian tanks blasted out of existence on the road to Kiev uh, and uh, other such fronts. I have heard reports of Ukraine using tank formations, but maybe that says something about the ill-prepared nature of Russian forces, the fact that they weren't instantly taken out. I don't know, and I'm not gonna uh, comment further on that. Suffice to say uh, that what we seem to be moving towards, we're not there yet, uh, is the US and uh, NATO supplying proper tanks. And what I mean by proper tanks is not um, pass me downs. I mean, that's what's been going on so far. So, for example, um, Croatia, just making it up, um, has got uh, a load of um, old 
um, T-74s and um, either Germany will supply them with a Leopard 2 or America will supply it with an Abraham something or other. And then they supply their old T-74s to the Ukrainian army. That has an advantage that the Ukrainian army would view that as their standard equipment. Doesn't take a long time of training people up. They can do it internally. Nevertheless, as I say, we seem to be moving towards um, Ukraine being given um, top rank uh, tanks. Why? Because at the moment, uh, America and Germany are supplying what are called armored fighting vehicles. Now, I had to look this up because it seems to cover quite a range of different armored fighting vehicles from armored cars to armored personnel carriers uh, to tank killers. So some of these look like tanks, are tanks, they're light tanks. Some of them run on wheels, and I'm talking about conventional wheels. Um, some of them are just uh, uh, ways of getting troops from A to B in relative safety. Nevertheless, um, this is a step in the direction of supplying Ukraine with offensive uh, uh, weaponry. Okay, just uh, lastly, on um, Ukraine, just to note the um, continued support, public opinion support, again, how you judge these things, it's extremely difficult, in uh, Russia uh, for the war. And uh, the basic perception there is, yes, we invaded, but we invaded because NATO uh, is out to get Russia. Uh, NATO ain't going to invade Russia, but clearly, if you read the press, uh, for example, over the Christmas period, you can read a lot of commentary in America from, how should we put it, uh, circles near and around and in uh, the Pentagon, uh, basically saying we've got to get Ukraine taking back everything. We can take back uh, um, Crimea. And indeed, this is our opportunity to take out Russia as a world power, which would be something, I don't know when Russia goes back as a world power, uh, but a long, long time. And of course, we all know about the Brzezinski plan of breaking Russia up. Uh, this is clearly in the minds of um, a whole number of strategists in the United States. And whether they can do it or not, that's an entirely uh, different question. In my own uh, personal view, again, for what it's worth, before that happens, Russia will throw itself in the arms of China. Note that China isn't openly supplying Russia with arms uh, at the moment. That matters, right? Uh, that's not just symbolic. That's because China doesn't feel ready uh, to do that. But clearly, that is where things are going. And all I would say uh, to comrades on the left that think this, that this war is about little Ukraine, we do need to think back to World War I not just in terms of the trench warfare and the artillery warfare uh, that I've already mentioned, but precisely, you know, was World War I about little plucky Belgium or was it about Serbia? No, this was about the big powers uh, um, and, and world domination. And it was crucially about uh, the hegemon Britain preempting uh, um, Germany, crushing down uh, uh, Germany. Uh, and, and precisely that's what the internationalist left saw, as opposed to the social chauvinist uh, left, which took the side of their own ruling class. 
Uh, and I, I think it's inexcusable uh, for anybody on the left with that short, surely with that sort of historic memory, not to see that uh, today, that this isn't simply about Ukraine. This is about Russia being taken out. And it's also about great power rivalry uh, um, between the so-called West, i.e. the United States, the global hegemon, and crucially, China. In other words, this war isn't going to stop uh, if Ukraine gets back uh, Crimea. It will carry on, okay, in different forms, uh, all the way to Beijing. That's what this war is about. And the, the job of the left isn't to back this or that side uh, in an inter-capitalist war. I'm not going to use the word inter-imperialist at the moment. We can talk about that. But our job isn't to back one side or the other. It's precisely to provide an alternative. That's the role uh, of the left. OK, strikes. Uh, yes, we're in the middle of a winter of discontent. Well, that was predictable wasn't it? And it looks like it will become a spring uh, of uh, discontent. That isn't hard to predict. And, uh, you know, as I speak, uh, we've got BMA junior doctors balloting. We've had teachers balloting. We've had the RCN, a union that was previously committed. Remember, you know, in its, in, in its origins uh, to no strike. I know they changed the rules. Uh, but there we are, we had an RCN strike. I can remember when we recruited someone, a nurse from the RCN, other comrades on the left said, you can't recruit someone like that in the RCN because that's a scab union. Well, call them a scab union now, uh, comrades. No, we want to be where the masses uh, are, whatever the nature uh, of the union regime is, uh, communists and the left ought to be there. Um, so anyway, what else have we got? Uh, we've got Unison, uh, UCU, uh, GMB, Unite, RMT, Aslef, Tussa. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. And as the comrades in the Socialist Worker uh, say in the latest edition, it's quite conceivable uh, that on February the 1st, we will see a million workers uh, out on strike. And it's quite right for the left to call for coordination from the TUC. If the TUC won't do it, look for other forms of a coordination, absolutely right. Uh, the comrades in the Socialist Party in England and Wales are calling for a 24 hour general strike. Well, I'm not going to argue uh, against it. Um, that will show people, you know, the power uh, of the working class, the potential of the working class. Uh, I believe that we should try to overcome sectionalism. I think it's a very good idea uh, to fight in ASLEF, for example not to have a separate deal as against the RMT, that would be a disaster. Ditto in the NHS, uh, the idea of settling with the RCN, but not Unison, not the GMB, not Unite, not with the ambulance workers, not with the junior doctors. No, we need unity. Uh, that is certainly uh, true. And at the moment, the government has, I mean, it, it, there are rumours going about, but at the moment, Rishi Sunak and the government hasn't shown that gumption. And the fact that they've stonewalled, in effect, we're not talking about pay, uh, adds uh, to our strength, but not because of our strength, but more because of their intransigent unites us. Uh, we should expect them, you know, if they've got any brains, and I do credit these people with brains, we should expect them to use divide and rule. And we need to be prepared uh, uh, for that. Um, 
having said that, just a couple of uh, straws in the wind on the other side, and we shouldn't discount uh, these, these things. Uh, there's an article in the Telegraph, um, and this is by Ben Marlow. I don't read the Telegraph normally, uh, but Ben Marlow isn't a nobody. He's their chief city commentator. So this is someone speaking with some authority in the pages of the daily, or I won't say daily telegraph, the telegraph, i.e. online. Okay, the headline is, Sunak must seize opportunity to break unions forever. Um, well, I don't think that's possible, uh, but nonetheless, we do have a history and anyone can look around the world uh, to see unions um, thrown back, um, see unions thoroughly disorganized and disempowered. And uh, it is quite conceivable. You know, a lot of us um, uh, on this uh, online communist forum will either know our history or live through the history, for example, uh, of the great miners strike. There was the NUM, which was almost considered invincible in the 70s, more or less destroyed uh, in 84, 85, but finally 1992. Uh, what's it now? I mean, it's uh, it's a nothing uh, union. It has a headquarters, but uh, no no power uh, anymore. And of course, we also have uh, Rishi Sunak's okay vague at the moment, but laws that he's promising, uh, which will mean imposing minimum service levels on emergency services. So that'll be ambulances, fire brigade, uh, hospitals, um, railways. Yeah, that's right. Um, what else is he talking about? He's talking about the right of employers to sue the unions for losses. He's also talking about the right of employers to sack workers who've engaged in industrial action uh, that isn't deemed within, um, you know, the, these minimum service uh, uh, um, laws or agreements, which are meant to be, we first negotiate them if they can be voluntary, and then we force them on you. What this would do is take trade unions back to the Taft Vale uh, judgment of 1900-1901. Uh, this is when the courts, okay, of course, acting on behalf of uh, the government, uh, made uh, trade unions liable for a strike. And you can imagine what that would do to the funds of the RMT. And at the moment, they have to shell out after ballot, after ballot, after ballot uh, to have strike action. You can imagine uh, them being sued by, you know, uh, does, does Virgin still run railways? I don't know. But, you know, you can imagine them being sued and then just bankrupted. Uh, on the other hand, I can also remember, because I've got grey hair and I'm old enough, I can remember Ted Heath, the Tory prime minister in the late 60s, anyway, in the 1970s, imposing his Industrial Relations Act. Um, and that basically said, if you lot go on strike, we'll arrest you because it's illegal. If you haven't got, you haven't registered your trade union. And I think only the electricians union registered uh, under his law. And what happened is the dockers went on strike. And lo and behold, they arrested five leaders and then hundreds of thousands of workers walked out and they were led uh, by the liaison committee for the defense of trade unions. I can remember going around workplaces with my CBGB comrades and we just brought out one factory 
one building site after the other. And the TUC was basically saying, that's what they'd agreed, that if these five dockers aren't released, uh, we will call a general strike. And what they meant by that, yeah, true, uh, was a 24 hour general strike. Nevertheless, the government caved and lo and behold, we had the official solicitor announcing their release and we knew we'd, we knew we'd won and these laws were made inoperative. That could happen again, uh, except, of course, the trade union movement is much weaker. The workers movement is much weaker. The left is much weaker. It could still happen. But we can't afford to be complacent. Uh, we could be defeated. We could score a victory or we could be defeated. We could score a partial victory, right? score a total victory. Um, that's to be decided. But we ought to be aware um, um, of uh, that possibility. OK, minimum service levels. We're in favour uh, of them. Uh, <laughs> if only, you know, you talk to anybody outside London and talk about bloody railways and you try to go, I say, from Liverpool uh, to Sheffield or from Manchester to London and see what the service levels uh, are like at the present time. And I'm not including strikes. They're bloody appalling. You know, I mean, didn't you have one of these metro mayors come down for a meeting and said, well, there's no point in me getting on the railway uh, to come to this meeting. You're like, I won't get there. Right. That's without one strike. What about minimum service levels in the NHS without strikes? What we've had is ambulance on average waiting half an hour uh, to discharge patients. Meanwhile, we've had horrendous cases, you know, of people waiting not just one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours. Would anyone voluntarily go to an accident and emergency department today? You know, I mean, it's the last thing I would do. You know, if I broke an arm, I would say I'll cure it myself. You know, sitting in a hospital for 12 hours, as I expected I'd have to. God help us. So, no, we want minimum service levels. And what I would say, actually, is that the trade unions ought to be responsible for that. And I would certainly say that those trade unions, for example, uh, um, ambulance workers who've gone from the picket line uh, to pick people up who've had a heart attack, I think that's absolutely the right thing to do. Except what I would be doing is putting on that ambulance, this ambulance moves courtesy of Unison or the GMB or Unite. That's what they did in 26 in the general strike. We ought to be in control of that, not management. We can agree with management. We can agree, uh, you know, with ambulance control and all that. But this needs to be run by the trade unions. And we need to make it clear that this is trade union power. And we want a situation where Granny or me, uh, for example, uh, don't die uh, by going to accident and emergency. We want a situation of where junior doctors, for example, also exert control. And we want them to display uh, that control. So not just a private agreement uh, between them on, and the management and uh, all that. We want that displayed. And that will actually help in the battle uh, for hearts and minds. Because we know that these people uh, are not selfish. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I spit on the Tories uh, in that respect. These people have suffered drops in their living standard already. And now the Tories are coming along and basically saying, oh, well, you know, you can have another what? Five, six, seven, eight percent drop in your living standards. 
amidst you know rising food prices amongst you know uh, rising energy prices amongst prices just going up going up mortgage rents everything is going up and our real wages uh, are going down we shouldn't be paying uh, for this economic mess and that precisely brings me to the importance of us actually having an internationalist position on ukraine of course ukraine is part of this you know why why are energy prices so high well you cannot deny the role of ukraine except we want to be saying this is not our war that's your war we do not support ukraine we do not support your war aims uh, uh, in this uh, war okay so we also have Keir Starmer saying he would reverse these laws. Good. Well, what about the rest of the laws? Not just going back to Thatcher. What about all the anti-trade union laws? Not only the anti-trade union laws that were passed in 26, uh, for example, that some are still on the statute book that were passed by the Tories after the defeat of the general strike, but going back, we don't want the law interfering uh, in the operations of the trade unions. Trade unions should be independent of the state and state interference. Okay. XR, Extinction Rebellion. Uh, we quit. Uh, very good PR. And what I mean by that is getting on to the headlines of newspapers and all the rest of it, because it comes over like they've surrendered. Um, it's not quite as simple. Uh, uh, as that. And initially, when I heard uh, this statement, I thought to myself, bloody hell, uh, the comrades in the Socialist Workers Party have been successful here. Uh, because what they, uh, you know, what they keep saying is, what matters is mass action. And I sort of, well, mm, sort of agree with them in part. Um, in my view, um, mass action in, in and of itself won't do what Extinction Rebellion says they want, which is systems change. If you want systems change, you've got to have an alternative government, which we very much agree with. But mass demonstrations, mass strikes, yes, we certainly agree with that. And it's not that I would myself say never to any tactic. Uh, that would be a, a mistake. But certainly I would look skeptically at elitist actions. For example, um, you know, gluing one's hand to a Van Gogh uh, frame. Okay, it gets you high publicity and then chucking a can of, what was it, Heinz soup or, or whatever it was, over a Van Gogh glass. Wow, okay. Is that going to bring about systems change? What about blocking the M25? Um, don't think that's going to bring up, will that actually cause a public reaction against you? I would have thought so. Um, you know, I would have thought so. So the, what they what they say they're doing is going for a mass action to surround Parliament uh, April the 21st. I presume that's a Saturday or a Sunday. They want to aim to get 100,000 people there. I think that's good. But what's interesting, therefore, is obviously I was totally wrong uh, when it comes to the SWP playing any role here, because I read in, I read in Socialist Worker that this is a mistake. And uh, I read in Socialist Worker, let me get the quote right, disruption is good and should not be rejected. Well, I agree, of course, it shouldn't be rejected. You know, it's like looking at the rail strikes. Is that disruptive? But the aim of the rail strike is not to cause disruption, is it? It's not we want to cause disruption. It's what they want is a deal. And they cause disruption 
as a byproduct of that. The aim is not to cause disruption, right? So in the same way with ambulance workers, you know, the aim is not to cause disruption. Uh, the aim is to force the other side to, to have proper negotiations and concede to their pay demand. With XR, well, I should say at least with uh, just say no to oil and insulate Britain, when you sit down in the middle of the M25, the aim is just to block the traffic. I know they then say uh, that what they're demanding is systems change. Well, any idea that you block the M25 and that will bring about systems change is uh, for the birds, isn't it? It's completely delusional and precisely the danger with such elitist actions is you get on a, um, an extremist, um, how should we put it, conveyor belt. Because clearly, you know, uh, throwing a can of soup over, um, you know, um, glass-plated Van Gogh is not going to bring Rishi Sunak rushing to you and saying, yes, I'm going to shut down all oil. It's not going to happen. You're going to end up in prison. Uh, that's what's going to happen. And uh, if the court, if the juries don't decide, they will have non-jury trials. It will be simple, simple as that. OK, so, um, yeah, so I personally, um, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of it. Uh, so I'm not going to say, well, this is a marvellous step forward because a mass demonstration in and of itself is not going to be the answer either. But the idea that uh, disruption is a, quote, is good, uh, I think is a mistaken uh, view. And instead of actually questioning the lack of democracy and the lack of accountability in Extinction Rebellion, uh, the comrades in the SWP just sort of shrug their shoulders and take it for granted. Who appointed this leadership? Who, who, is, who, is, it, who, who is this leadership accountable to? How can this leadership be recalled? I don't know of any democratic decision-making progress. Uh, process. What you've got is a self-appointed elite and a self-perpetuating uh, elite. Well, that's a very dangerous uh, thing because it's open, as we pointed out, and I don't think that, that, that I'm not trying to cast aspersions, but it is wide open uh, to MI5 and what used to be called the special branch, i.e. the dark, you know, the forces of the dark state, uh, to manipulate people and to get people doing uh, hash split, um unwise things. Um, I mean, I'll just finish with this on, on that particular line of thought. Worth noting, isn't it, that the combat organization, this is of the Socialist Revolutionary Party in Russia, was led by a czarist agent who then proceeds to assassinate czarist ministers, who then proceed to round up the entire armed wing of the SR um, and put them all in prison. Well, what the hell was all that about? Um, anyway, so I'm just making that warning uh, that, you know, that such closed organizations, unaccountable organizations are also manipulable uh, organizations. Um, just on um, XR as well, we also have a breakaway, uh, which is very predictable, uh, not towards direct action uh, this time and ever more extreme action. One Rupert Reed has headed this thing, and the name gives it away, the moderate flank. Well, there you are, that's the name. And what he's proposing is to get together with quote unquote, lawyers, insurers, business leaders, and activists 
uh, to come up with a broad response to the climate change crisis. Well, what this is about is following the footsteps of Jonathan Porritt, remember him of the Green Party, and into lots and lots of money. Now, I'm not casting any aspersions about uh, Mr. Reid, uh, but I do suspect that somehow a load of these uh, lawyers, insurers and business leaders are willing to pay fat checks uh, to be greenwashed uh, by uh, an organization such as Moderate Flank. The name will have to be changed because it doesn't mean anything, does it? But nonetheless, you get the point. OK, moving on. Um, Harry Windsor. No, I haven't watched the Netflix series. I'm not going to watch the damn Netflix series. I'm not going to rush out and buy my copy of Spare. No, but when it makes headline, um, you know, and not, and not just headlines in Britain, but around the world, I think that the left misses something when it just goes on about strikes. It's not that strikes aren't important, they are incredibly important at, at this time. But what's going on here isn't just, I mean, what was old Tolstoy? I can't get the quote right. What did Tolstoy begin Anna Karenna with? Something along the lines of all happy families are happy in the same way, which clearly isn't true. I'm sure people are happy in their own different ways, but all unhappy families are, un are unhappy in their own unique way. Well, looking at the Windsors, I don't know, uh, but given the nature of them as all being millionaires and living this sort of peculiar um, existence of being in public view and yet craving privacy and uh, um, all the rest of it and their marriages and their divorces and their children and all the rest of it, uh, clearly this is a peculiar uh, family And what we've had a glimpse of, just like with the Diana uh, scandal, is that the curtain um, has been, um, you know, drawn apart a bit. And what we've had is uh, stories of um, Harry falling out with Wills over Meghan and uh, blows not being exchanged because Harry didn't strike back. But what we've had is uh, Will's losing his call. Uh, what we've had is I was a bigot until I met Megan. I'm sure that's right, Harry. I'm sure you were a bigot. Just watch it, by the way. You could still easily still be a bigot. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know you one way or the other. But I do suspect that this institution that banned colored people, they're their words, not mine, from working in clerical posts in the palace until 1968, if I got the year right, is bigoted. Here's an institution that presided and has a historic memory of empire and the Commonwealth and Britain running other countries and viewing the non-white Commonwealth as inferior. The idea that these people um, have suddenly reinvented themselves, uh, come off it. Uh, of course they haven't. You know, the idea of uh, whatever his name was, um, Philip Montbatten, Philip Windsor, um, the dear um, partner of um, QE2, not being a bigot. Oh, come on. Of course he was. And the rest of them clearly were and are. Uh, you know, OK, they're reinventing themselves. 
uh, you know, for, um, you know, the modern world. And clearly Megan, not saying that, we, that those two were married because of that project, you know, of making the royal family look more like who they're meant to be ruling over, but it would have helped, except they blew it and they blew it big time. The whys and the wherefores of it, I don't know anything about. Who said what to who? Quite frankly, I don't care, but they blew it. What else do we get? Oh, Harry the aristocrat. Uh, Harry, um, you know, um, who all the girls were after, had his first sexual encounter in a, in a field next to a pub. Well, I suspect that isn't that extraordinary. I've never had sex in a field outside a pub but hey you know we've all done strange things so that wasn't that interesting and nor was his uh, revelation that he'd, he'd smoked pot <gasps> and taken cocaine well i've never taken cocaine myself let alone magic mushrooms but i mean it's like so what but apparently if you admit it and you get done for it but admit it that's meant to bar you from america America doesn't give you a, a visa. I'm sure that will be waived uh, with Harry Windsor. So the rest of it is pretty bloody mundane. And I'd also say the same is true. OK, lots of people haven't served in the army or the Air Force or the armed forces, uh, including me. But I tell you this, uh, that if you're um, a fighter pilot or a bomber pilot or uh, um, an Apache pilot, I do or, or someone operating a drone, that's hovering in the air over Afghanistan and you look at a Taliban group and you go click, 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 and you release your munitions or you go chunk, chunk, chunk. And I do suspect somehow that when he talks about these people being, he's viewing them as chess pieces. I suspect that that's how they justify it, that in their own heads, of course they do. And you know, the idea that someone sitting in the middle of America who's uh, doing a drone attack in Afghanistan views these people as human beings, I don't believe it. And when you, when you carpet bomb a city in Germany, you do not think about the human suffering of these people. No, you don't. And that's the truth about warfare. And so what is amazing uh, um, with these non-revelations in uh, this bloody book, what, Spare and this uh, Netflix stuff, you know, revelations that are just like, Harry is just like any average, um, you know, Joe blog, right, basically, except he's, you know, born into incredibly privileged family. What is amazing is a propaganda war that's been directed at him. And all I needed when um, Spare was first leaked is to turn on my BBC Radio 4 news and to hear the Taliban being quoted approvingly. I don't know when the last time I heard the Taliban being, you know, quote, quoted approvingly, but apparently, Mr. Harry, these people are human beings. When did we last hear the BBC when they reported Afghanistan or Iraq? I remember the Iraq War One and Iraq War Two, and watching this fucking obscenity. Excuse my Anglo-Saxon, where what we had is um, cruise missile warfare, right? and how that can just take out a building. Weren't there human beings in that building, BBC? No, we were meant to marvel at the technology. That's what the BBC has been selling us. This is clinical warfare. No, it's not, because we know it wasn't just Taliban fighters. And they, yeah, they've got families, they've got wives, they've got children, they've got aunties, they've got mums, they've got dads. 
but we've also had wedding parties uh, taken out. For every so-called Taliban fighter that they took out, how many ordinary civilians? I don't know. How, how do you spot the difference between a Taliban fighter and a civilian out there in a field or in a, in a village? You can't, surely. So what we've had here is a, a, an attack uh, on Harry Windsor by the firm. And uh, that includes uh, not only um, the Sun, the Daily Express, the Daily Mail, the Telegraph, the Times, but also I was reading Brendan O'Neill. Some people might recognize the name Brendan O'Neill on this online communist forum. He's the chief political commentator of Spiked, which used to be living Marxism, which used to be the Revolutionary Communist Party. And there he is writing in the Spectator saying that he is, quote, unquote, in Team Wills. He's joining up with Team Wills against Harry, who's a spoiled brat and he's a typical Californian. Well, OK, so I've got no sympathy in that sense with um, one wing of the royal family with the other. But I can spot the difference between the establishment ganging up on a black sheep um, and the establishment itself. And we need to understand that what's happened uh, with Spiked and the old RCP is they think they've infiltrated the establishment <laughs> and they're, they're somehow doing a takeover job. It's the other way round, Brendan and uh, Lady, whatever your bloody name is, and Frank Ferrudi. You've joined the establishment. You've become tools uh, of the establishment and uh, the wills and uh, the Harry thing uh, illustrates it. And what we need to understand that although the firm at the present time is maintaining a studious uh, policy of silence, in reality, it's feeding, feeding the press, it's feeding the media, uh, and it's making sure that the media is on side uh, in its war against Harry Windsor, who apparently is winning the propaganda war in America, which is an interesting one. Now, I just thought that comrades might be interested in looking at the bigger picture here. Uh, the Financial Times carried a, um, an opinion poll, and what's happened in terms of the firm, and I include Harry as part of that for this discussion, is they've all taken a, a knock when it comes to public opinion. Public opinion, like royalty, less um, with um, Spare and Netflix overall. So the top royals in terms of popularity have all taken a hit, and the ones at the bottom have also taken a hit. But I'll give you the, not the top 10, but I'll give you the rundown. Coming out on top is William and Kate, along with Anne uh, Windsor. So people like Anne Windsor. And they get a 60% positive rating, right? So even with the knock um, of um, spare, they get a 60% rating. Charles and his uh, younger brother, Edward, they're on 40%. So when people ask, do you think he's doing a good job? 40%, he's doing a good job. When it comes to poor old Harry Windsor, do you think he's doing a good job? He actually gets a negative rating and he gets a minus 20 rating. Poor old Megan, uh, Miss, Mrs. California, so to speak, she's on minus 40%. And the only person that beats her, you've already guessed it, 
who's really at the rock, rock bottom, is Andrew Windsor on minus 80%. Now, some will look at those figures and say uh, that this is the end of the monarchy and um, it's all over by the shouting. I think that is profoundly mistaken. Yes, it's good uh, that we've seen, you know, you know, some light shed on the monarchy. That's good for Republicans. Uh, that's positive from our point of view, that these people are dysfunctional, just like the rest of us. You know, none of us got perfect bloody families and they are not quite as dysfunctional as some, but they're more functional, more dysfunctional uh, than others. So we know that that's good from our point of view, um, you know, because of the whole question of uh, the mystique uh, of the royal family, the fact that the royal family is part of the British constitution, the dignified, the so-called dignified part of the, uh, the British constitution, as old uh, uh, Walter, Walter Bagshot uh, uh, says, um, that's been um, exposed. They're not very dignified when they're, you know, um, hitting uh, each other or, or leaking stories about each other. It's very un undignified. But in order to bring about a republic, we need more than public opinion going like that. We need an agency. And all you need to do is look around at the left who ignore this question and uh, who are basically like Jeremy Corbyn, who are platonic Republicans uh, to see the problem. So there you are looking at Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party's 2019 manifesto, royal family, nothing. I personally, uh, I'm sure he would say I'm a Republican, but it has no impact when it comes to political programme. Okay. Um, Labour Party, look at their latest constitutional proposals. Nothing about the royal family, House of Lords to replace it with a more powerful second chamber. Crazy stuff. Why on earth do you want a more powerful second chamber? I mean, it's just asking for a constitutional crisis uh, because, you know, the conservative um, body will turn around and say, we're the real legitimate ones. We really, we're elected by PR. Does that Trump first pass the post? I don't know. It's a dangerous one to play because the establishment will choose their house, um, not us. I mean, if it's the House of Commons or the House of the Nations, they would choose their conservative one and say this is the, the most representative um, if it came to any, the left making any uh, real progress. The Morning Star, you might say, well, what about them? Well, there's an article in the Morning Star, God help us, uh, that's calling for a referendum on the monarchy. Well, we ain't going to get it, are we? Who the hell's going to call it? You know, is the Labour Party going to do it? No. Are the Tories going to do it? No. And what the, f excuse me again, Anglo-Saxon, you know, what are you going to do about it? And why the hell, if you could do anything about it, would you bother with a referendum? You know, if the left was in the position of forming a government, why the hell would you form, would you, you know, have a ref? No, you'd overthrow the monarchy in the process of coming to power. You would deny their legitimacy. You couldn't do anything else. You know, you get a majority in the House of Commons, just suppose. The first thing they do, the other side do, is they say, we're not going to call your guy to the house, you know, to the palace. The next thing they do is unleash MI5, the army. They carry out a coup in the name of the monarch. What do you do? You say, well, sod the monarchy. 
we don't recognize it the monarchy is abolished that's what you have to do so holding a referendum is just daft so no uh, the left ought to take this seriously the left ought to take the politics of all classes uh, seriously it's why we uh, I don't know, I haven't read the whole of the left press. I mean, there you are, the leader of the Catholic Church. I don't know how many followers the Catholic Church has got. A billion, 1.1 billion. Anyway, round about maybe the population of China, something like that. This guy dies, and as far as the left is concerned, it hasn't happened. What an opportunity to comment um, on a big institution that certainly when it comes to Italy, uh, South America, the United States, Ireland, Germany matters. Even Britain, Catholic Church matters. Okay, how much time? Really pushing it. So sorry, comments. I just want to squeeze in in the next couple of minutes. I know I've spoken far too long. Two, two more executions in Iran. <clears throat> I just wanted to pose <clears throat> the question of Clearly, uh, the Iranian masses refuse to be ruled in the old way. That's obvious. You know, women are in revolt, workers are in revolt, students are in revolt. When it comes to nighttime, you know, um, cries go up from the top of houses, death to the Ayatollahs, death to the regime. Um, so the masses hate the regime. The regime is experiencing crisis, but it hasn't split. Uh, decisively. So there's talk of giving concessions, uh, but the masses still don't have the courage, and quite rightly on one level, to take to the streets in their hundreds of thousands. Why? Because they will be shot down. So a crisis for the regime, yes. Uh, whether the masses are on the cusp of carrying out a revolution, on the other hand, I don't think so. And the danger precisely is, is you get a section of the elite uh, going uh, for a change in order to impose a new form of rule. Now that could be the military, it could be a, um, another section of the Ayatollahs, uh, it could be regime change sponsored uh, by the CIA, I don't know. Uh, but at the moment, uh, what the Iranian masses uh, are lacking is anything remotely uh, like a party. There's many groups abroad, but nothing, nothing. We've got hundreds of different, literally hundreds of fragments, uh, and that's all. Last, and this will uh, be featured, I know, in next week's uh, paper, and I couldn't uh, but mention it, uh, and that's the thesis um, that uh, the United States Constitution is malfunctional. I think you might have heard that um, on this online communist forum more than once. And what we had is 15 ballots, 15 ballots uh, to get Kevin McCartney uh, agreed uh, as uh, Speaker of the um, House of Representatives. And I think what this presages is um, ongoing crisis uh, in the United States. It isn't just um, the crisis between the Republicans and the Democrats. It's also the crisis in uh, the Republicans. And given how even um, the House of uh, Representatives is, and given, I mean, who knows what chance he has, and I wouldn't write him off, given that the only declared candidate uh, for president 
in 20, is it 2023, November 2023? I think that's the right uh, dating. Um, to become president in 2024, I think I'm right, um, is Donald Trump. Um, and uh, we've had uh, uh, January the 6th, and we now, I think, know, well, I think we knew all about what we needed to know about January the 6th very quickly after January the, the 6th. My own view was this was not a nothing. Uh, we had some comments on the left saying this was just a demonstration that got out of hand, dumb or stupid. This was an attempt by the sitting president, formerly still the president, to stop the election of the elected president. You know, this was a situation where the chief of staff was saying, don't obey the president. It's what he's saying to the army, obey me. You know, this is, you know, okay, so the SWP, not SWP, the counterfire, John Reese, Lindsay German, I thought this was a dumbest, dumbest, dumbest comment. I couldn't believe it. Uh, they said, <laughs> great idea. Well, this wasn't a coup or an attempted coup, like, uh, this was like the beer hall putsch. Like, well, that's what the word coup means in German, John. I mean, so this is like saying this wasn't like an attempted coup. It wasn't like an attempted coup. And it, out of their mouths came stupidity. Well, OK, if it was the beer hall putsch, the attempt, well, you know, like an attempt to have a march from Munich to Rome, that isn't something to dismiss. That tells you something about the state of political health of Weimar Germany. The fact that there'd previously been a putsch and that was stopped by the working tells you something about the crisis of the regime, let alone a crisis, not by some, you know, the head of the former head of the army joining this rabble rouser Adolf Hitler to march on uh, Berlin, uh, <laughs> formerly the head of government, the head of the army, the commander chief uh, to take over and get his vice president not to uh, sanction the election um, of his replacement. That isn't a nothing. That is not something uh, that the left should dismiss lightly because the, the crisis of the regime, we need to understand what's caused it will cause it again. In other words, January the, the 6th was a symptom, just like uh, the uh, beer hall putsch was a symptom uh, of something. And you can dismiss it as not, uh, nothing, then you don't see the problem. Uh, that's in front of us. There is clearly the danger of some sort of um, coup against democracy as democracy passes in the United States. The United States, just like Britain, is a semi-democracy. I don't want to go there, but no, this is not something to dismiss lightly. Anyway, we're going to have an article by you know who uh, in the forthcoming paper, and if if Dan, if you want to speak on this question, you're very welcome, of course. Um, but I'm, I, I, you know, I'm not attempting to cover it. I'm, I'm merely flagging um, it. Thank you very much, Oliver. Um, and there we are. I have spoken for exactly an hour.